Hello, and welcome to the Life Science Report, a podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. My name is Pete Bach, a managing director here at Back Bay. And today I'm joined by my friends and colleagues, Christian Tienel and Brendan Wang, engagement managers here at Back Bay. As we kick off 2023, they're here to discuss some of the trends, issues, and articles that most intrigue them from 2022. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Pete. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Pleasure to be here. So, Brendan, Christian, can you talk a bit about what you reviewed and what topics most piqued your interest from 2022? Yeah, and I would say the the initial list of topics that we, you know, as we we're kind of scraping through the headlines from January 22 through December, uh, that initial list was pretty long. Um, so there are definitely a lot of runner ups, and and we'll we'll kind of call out those, but. Um, as we go, but we kind of broke it up into a couple of, you know, news categories that are of interest to us. So, you know, things like key data and trial readouts, big company uh, and corporate changes. So like M&A and partnerships, that sort of thing, market access and, and reimbursement, uh, regulatory changes. And there were some very interesting ones this year. Um, and then just, uh, you know, cool science. Um, and so, uh you know, ultimately, we we landed on three big ones um, that we'll talk about today. The first being sort of updates um, in uh, CRISPR and, and gene editing. Uh, and then Christian will kind of talk through uh, some uh, progress in gene therapy reimbursement. And there was a lot of movement in that space mm-hmm. this year. Um, and then that sort of last topic being uh, a cool science um, headline that ties in, I promise, to... Um, some of the other topics, and that's on xenotransplantation, and our intern Mishka uh, helped with a lot of the research uh, there. So, some of the runner-ups, and I'd be remiss if we skipped over that, um, include, you know, increased focus and interest in the anti-infective space beyond sure. you know COVID nineteen, yeah. which has dominated a lot of the headlines. Um, and then, from a regulatory perspective, there are a couple of really interesting ones. So, obviously, the Inflation Reduction Act, and there's been a lot of separate yeah. coverage of that recently. Um, accelerated approval reform, which is also um, getting talked about a lot. I think um, the FDA commissioner addressed it recently um, at, at the JPM conference. Um, and then early 2022, we saw the um, FDA's perspective kind of change a bit on the use of single country yeah. ex-US pivotal data for approval and, you know, with, with Eli Lilly's um, PD-1 um, and, and, uh, you know, the headlines there, um, aducanumab obviously covered ad nauseum, um, throughout 22. And there are a lot of parallels, I thought, um, with, um, Amilix's, um, ALS therapy. And that obviously played out a slightly different way than aducanumab. And then now we see this evolving story with lacanumab, and yeah. hopefully in the first half of the year, uh, Danenamab. Um, so a, a lot of stuff that I think, you know, we considered um, really interesting headlines. The ones we'll talk about today, as I outlined earlier, yeah. those were the ones that made the final list. Yeah. So. Certainly we could spend an entire podcast on a lot of those co- uh, topics and it'd be interesting to see. It'd be interesting to see what happens with uh, uh, Lacanamab given, um, you know, what happened with the... Uh, the other product. So, 
So a- anyway, saving those for another day, uh, uh, how about we, we get right into it with uh, the topic being the progress in gene therapy and, and gene editing. Obviously, we've, we've covered this in previous podcasts and here at Back Bay have done a lot of work over the past um, you know, half decade as the field evolves. What's really exciting is we're starting to see um, you know, more and more data being generated um, you know, similar products, both having data drops in the same space, you know, within sickle cell disease, uh, gene editing assets moving forward uh, with their BLA closer to, to commercial launch. So, um, yeah, it, it'd be great to hear sort of uh, uh, what you guys saw and, and what intrigued you most from the past year there. Yeah. So, and, you know, we've done, as, as you mentioned, I mean, we've done a lot of work in the editing space, uh, particularly in the last two, three years, which obviously matches the increasing investor and mm-hmm. scientific interest in the field. I think the way I at least think about the field is, you know, ex vivo applications and then in vivo yep. applications of, of editing. And ex vivo is sort of the furthest along, just given it's technically a little bit easier. You, you kind of take out that variable of like, what is the Cas9 um, or the editing construct? What does that do long-term in vivo mm-hmm. by doing it ex vivo? So on the ex vivo front, we saw a number um, of key data readouts. So, you know, Bluebird's FDA got FDA approval, obviously, for um, Zinteglo mm-hmm. in transfusion-dependent thalassemia. So that was a big one. That one's a little different than some of the other assets we'll talk about because that one uses a lentiviral um, vector and it was approved in in um, in Europe before um, it was in in the in the US. But it was very exciting to see that approval come through. So yeah. that was obviously a, a big one. On another topic, um, you know, CRISPR Therapeutics and Vertex they're partnered on um, a couple of assets, and so for CTX. 001 or Exacel, um, they got some durability data back in transfusion-dependent thalassemia in 44 patients, of which 42 were transfusion-free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the earliest um, patient that they enrolled in the trial was transfusion-free for over three years. Mm-hmm. Um, there were there were two patients um, who could not get off of transfusions, but they saw pretty substantial reductions in the number and frequency yeah. that they had to receive. So that's that's pretty outstanding. Um, and, and obviously, you know, that's among the first data that we're getting back for the gene editing field as a whole, which sure. is um, really exciting. On that same asset, Exocell is also being um, studied in sickle cell disease, as you alluded to, Pete. Yeah. Um, and so they got data back um, in the sickle cell um, area as well. So they had 31 patients in that trial um, with no severe um, veno-occlusive VOCs. um, And there, the earliest uh, patient enrolled in the trial uh, had not had a severe VOC in 32 months. So again, I think, you know, there were questions one or two years ago on what is the durability of a effect going to be? That obviously has huge implications to reimbursement, exactly. among yeah. other things, which Christian will will touch on. Um, and as of now, it looks like the initial data looks pretty promising on that front. Yeah. 
So their the current estimate, um, I think publicly, is that in the first quarter um, of this year, 2023, we'll see um, filings for Exacel in, um, I think, one or both of those indications. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So following up um, behind them, we have um, Editas as well. So within 2022, they released um, very recently in December uh, initial data on two patients. Um, they don't have long-term data yet. So the two patients so far are at five months and, and 1.5 months. But the initial data looks like they've checked the boxes of yeah. it's safe. And um, the responses so far appear to be pretty robust. Yeah. Um, and and Brendan, as we sort of move from the the ex vivo approaches to the to the in vivo approaches, just for the 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 uninitiated and and folks that uh, may not be um, you know in in the weeds here, when we talk about ex vivo, basically what what we're doing, or or not we, <laughs> what the uh, uh, what the physicians are doing are, are taking out a patient's hematopoietic stem cell, editing it, and then after some conditioning where they, um, you know, ablate the patient's bone marrow, basically reconstitute them with the edited product, which, you know, while while fascinating, certainly is a different level of, of complexity than just adding, adding the editing vector into the body and letting it find the tissue and, and edit within uh, a, a patient while they're walking around, uh, uh, essentially. So, um, just to sort of level set those, those specific indications and assets we're talking to before we move over to the other side of the house, as it were. Yeah. And it's, it's very, um, it's very similar to, um, autologous, um, CAR T therapies Certainly, that yeah. have now been around for a couple of years. And yeah, as you mentioned, but the key challenge is, are the sort of like supply chain because everything is customized to the individual patient and that vein to vein time. So once you take that sample, how much processing time is there before you can get reinfused with your specific um, cells? So So on on, on the in vivo front, bring us up to date there. Yeah. So in vivo, I think, you know, it's a bit earlier than ex vivo. Again, ex vivo was the lower hanging um, fruit from a technical and execution perspective. Mm. In vivo, though, we did get some initial data back. I thought that was extremely um, impressive and interesting. So in early 2022, we saw um, Editas, uh, their asset, Edit 101, showed some mixed results um, in LCA10, which is an inherited form of, of blindness. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, that was scrapped, I think, um, a couple of months ago. Um, so that, you know, maybe not as, as favorable as, as we had hoped, but, you know, as we know with science, you, you win some and you lose a lot. So, uh, you know, that, that's one that maybe didn't go so, so favorably because edit 101, that was in, um, the main organ is the eye. It is also a little bit of a unique case because the eye is sort of an immune privileged organ. Um, so when we think about in vivo therapies in general, I think more of systemic administration. Sure, yeah. And so on that front, Intellia generated some really interesting data in um, transthyretin amyloidosis or ATTR mm-hmm. amyloidosis, as well as um, hereditary angioedema or HAE for yeah. short. Um, so both of those therapeutic areas are interesting. I think 
you know, those in the industry, those who've been in the industry for a while will know that they have uh, both of those um, uh, diseases have a number of um, approved, you know, biologics yeah. or uh, in the in the case of ATTR, um, some RNA-based therapeutics mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. So this is the first time we're seeing in vivo editing data and it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out once you have the um, sort of the ability for these one and done or very long-term yeah. treatments versus having some of those chronically um, therapies that are available, how that'll play out over the next couple of years. So um, in ATTR, what we saw was um, a toxic protein reduction of about 52% up to, in some patients, 87%, which is pretty impressive. Um, And in six patients, there was an average reduction of 93%. So um, three patients reached nine months follow-up following the initial infusion Mm -hmm. uh, and and continued to have an average of 80% reduction in that toxic protein, again, for that ATTR amyloidosis. So Again, it's not multi-year data, but we are approaching one year and the data so far look very robust. We also, on the HAE or hereditary angioedema front, again, saw um, some strong durability data there. So based on some initial um, data in three patients, two of them were attack-free through 16 weeks and one was attack-free after week 10 yeah. through week 16 and and we'll we'll you know see how the durability of that over multiple years goes um yeah. but one of the key biomarkers that they look for in HAE um that reduction was between 65 and 90% okay. which yeah. is pretty comparable with the current standard yeah. of care Taxiro which is a um biweekly treatment from Takeda, which launched in the last couple of years. So very, very, very impressive. I think just to add to, I think it'll be interesting to see how <clears throat> how some of the durability data with in vivo gene editing plays out relative to some of the discussion around some of the AAV-based gene therapies in the past couple of years where kind of the durability of effect has been a yeah. key question of, you know, is this going to maintain for five, 10 plus years? Are we going to need some kind of a, basically a booster, some kind of like reinfusion that really, you know, they're not necessarily one time, but that, you know, that's still to be seen and, and borne out in data. But I think it'll be interesting to see if the gene editing, you know, products or, or you know, assets have that same, uh, you know, that same concern or that same issue potentially from from the external perspective. Gotcha. gotcha. So I would say the the last um, sort of key, uh, it was not really a data readout, but um interesting headline was yeah. that um you know we saw the entry of a base editor as yeah. well in 2022 into the clinic so verve uh dosed its first patient in July with verve 101 a base editor designed to uh deactivate PS- PCSK9 yeah. in patients with heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia try to say that 10 yeah. times fast good job this time uh, <laughs> <laughs> um and so data from that trial is expected in 2023. And um, we, at that, at that uh, time point, would anticipate some data on safety, PCSK9 levels, and LDLC reduction, which are the key measures that we look for in, in that particular 
um, indication. So I think um, some of the key sort of themes, implications, et cetera, that we're you know, constantly thinking about and that we'll continue monitoring throughout 2023 is how are companies ultimately going to differentiate? Um, particularly as you just heard, a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, players with gene editing modality in transfusion dependent thalassemia, sickle cell yeah. disease. Yeah. And so as those um, spaces get more and more crowded, you know, is there going to be a winner? Are those spaces big enough to accommodate multiple products? Yeah. And what are the key attributes that um, patients and physicians will really hone in on that drives their decision-making as to which product they ultimately um, receive? Excellent. Excellent. And so, so Christian, we talked a little bit about the evolution of the space. We're starting to see some regulatory approvals for next-gen um, uh Assets rack up, right? A couple in the U.S. Yeah. We talked about Zinteglo, uh, a few others in the in the U.S. and EU for for hemophilia. And now, right as the field evolves, we're starting to get more data on how, be it regional HTAs in the EU and payers in the United States are beginning to to view these areas and assets. So right. maybe you can bring us up to speed there. Yeah, definitely. So I think, um, yeah, 2022 is a really interesting year, you know, with respect to, as you mentioned, Pete, kind of gene therapies and the, you know, some of the later stage uh, programs there. I think it was also a bit of a resurgence in, you know, kind of positive news for gene therapies yeah. and sort of later stage products as, you know, there were four FDA approved or, you know, four major regulatory approvals, three in FDA and an additional one in Europe um, in 2022 with, you know, two from Bluebird being Zinteglo and Skysona both approved as well as, you know, Hemgenics from CSL Bearing yeah. and then Roctavian approved in, in Europe. And, you know, I, again, I think that's a bit of a, you know, some, some positive momentum for gene therapies as it relates to, you know, regulatory approvals moving into commercial use and that yeah. sort of thing. I think one of the one of the big questions that I think we continue to get a lot, you know, in the in the work that we do is around reimbursement for these therapies. Sure, How are payers going to think about them? Yeah. Particularly in Europe, where it's been a bit tougher sledding, um, you know, as it as it relates to some of these pricing and reimbursement decisions. And I think, you know, the most notable example being, you know, Bluebird's kind of issues with Zinteglo. You know, they kind of initially launched in Europe. It was a very high-profile situation. Everyone was very excited about it, at least from the industry perspective. And, you know, they ultimately weren't able to reach an agreement with the GBA in Germany. Um, they it initially launched in the sort of, you know, initial launch period and wound up, you know, withdrawing from Germany. They also weren't able to reach an agreement with NICE in the UK. And ultimately yeah. withdrew from Europe, and, you know, entirely, and, and their kind yeah. of commercial presence. So I think that was a bit of a bit of a surprise, and and cast quite a bit of doubt on, you know, yeah. is you know Europe long term going to be a viable market for this sort of gene therapy business model? Um, I think you know they were looking for kind of a one point eight million dollar price paid out over five installments, and you know, obviously yeah. we'll never know, you know, what goes on in those discussions, and that's all confidential. But I think um, some insight 
potentially comes from the ICER review, which was, I think, a big uh, big news in 2022 for Zinteglo. And for anyone who's not familiar, ICER is the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. Yeah. They're a nonprofit based in Boston. They do a lot of kind of health economic-based analysis, and they've come, become pretty pretty famous or infamous, depending on your, uh, depending <laughs> perspective. On your perspective, um, for kind of their assessments of particularly, you know, higher-priced oncology and, yeah. you know, cell and gene therapy products in assessing, you know, what is a cost-effective price. And an interesting thing is, you know, if you look at them in the oncology space, they're often, you know, sometimes orders of magnitude sure. below, um, you know, where, where where products are priced in the U.S. But often in with gene therapies and cell therapies, they're a little bit a little bit closer to kind of where yeah. companies ultimately come out. And I think an interesting piece was, you know, their analysis of Zinteglo basically showed that around $2 million was potentially a cost-effective price for the product, you know, Bluebird launched at 2.8 million in the U.S., so a little bit higher than that. But I think one of the key learnings from that report, which potentially has some, you know, line of sight into the decision making in Europe, was that there was a lot of variability in that model around, you know, the durability effect of effect, obviously for Zinteglo, but also kind of some of the complexities of the standard of care, yeah, um, you know, and and the cost offsets that that might be there. Where there was basically a range from below a million to up to two million that that could be a cost-effective price. And I think yeah. one of the issues we often see with HTAs is that any uncertainty in, you know, a pricing analysis or particularly a cost-effectiveness kind of analysis is really one of the one of the key reasons why they're hesitant to reimburse or or reach an agreement. Yeah. So it'll be um, it'll be interesting yeah. to see that you know that question of durability of response sort of influencing how sponsors think about trial design and timing in a space where, you know, inherently due to the regulatory structures, you you have a very fast to market right. approach that where many a times you're you're approved based on a, a very well validated, certainly biomarker, but a biomarker nonetheless. And if, you know, the difference between seven hundred thousand and two million is a couple based on a couple of years of data, you know, how do you think through tactically that that launch price, it'll be, it'll be right. interesting. Right. I, I, I totally agree. And I think you know, there's obviously been a lot of talk around these sort of innovative payment models sure. or other types yeah. of, of contracting that you could, you could look at. But I think as, as you know, we've seen in, in the sort of Germany example for, for Bluebird, it's, you know, potentially, I would presume that that was part of the discussion and, you know, yeah. wasn't enough to, to get it over the finish line. So yeah. And I guess the other the, the other wrinkle is, and for folks that want to go back and listen to the podcast with Alexander Knotts with UCOPE, it, you know, and, and and he brought it up as how sort of centralized review may change that, right? Yeah, and, and you've definitely. got sort of not you know twenty something bodies in their perspective, but but one, and you know, as you begin to see some of the first, you know, when that happens, and I think it was twenty twenty five, yeah, know, for their selling gene therapy, yeah. and you know will be so yeah i think it's it's really interesting i was also reading about that a little bit in kind of preparation for this and one of the interesting notes was actually that um uh the initial plan for that kind of centralized hta was intending to rely a lot on the kind of nice uh analysis and sort of their contribution but now that they're you know not really not part of the eu anymore it's kind of a uh complicates a bit of the you know who's has a seat at the table in terms of uh putting together that framework so um really really interesting uh interesting stuff um, so can yeah. you guys, and, and I, uh, I, I must've missed this, this headline in, in 2022. Can, can you, um, is this centralized, um, HTA review process? Like it, is the, 
Is is it like a non-binding type yeah. of? Uh, okay, okay. At least that is how the the um, as I understand it, the legislation is currently written. Is that it would be a non-binding assessment where each you know each individual state is still you know responsible for their own pricing and reimbursement decision making. <clears throat> but I think it'll it'll be interesting to see you know to what extent how this plays out and how that becomes you know could it be like a de, a de facto you know this is this is the decision versus yeah. you know do we keep the same kind of structure in place um, in, in each market I think the intention is to sort of eliminate some of the some of the, these exact types of issues where you'll have you know one market that an agreement can't be reached and you can in another and it leads to these decisions that are you know strategic in nature for a company just not doing business in Europe and. Um, you know, obviously I think they, they view that as a, as a negative. So, yeah. So, so, so what else? Maybe talk about some of the, the, the U S launches and, and, and pricing expectations and, and what's going on there. Yeah, sure. So I think, that, I mean, the most, the most interesting kind of recent one being, you know, CSL bearings, yep. hemogenics, which, um, was approved, uh, you know, about a month ago, um, for hemophilia B, which, you know, as we know, has been an area that we've looked at a lot, sure. um, you know, on, on kind of all sides of our business in terms of a lot of interest from, from industry and investors there. And, you know, I think, you know, obviously that product was notable in that it is the most expensive therapy of all time at about, you know, three and a half million per, per course of therapy. Um, but again, there was an ICER review for that that felt that, you know, a price of around $3 million actually was, you know, potentially cost effective and, and made, a, you know, economic sense. Yeah. Um, although the, the kind of key caveat there is that factor replacement therapy, in ICER's opinion, is drastically over overpriced. Sure. So there's some uh, some complication, I guess, of the interesting yeah. kind of inputs I never, I, there. I, I never thought of that as if you're referencing a high-priced drug that ICER doesn't like or, uh, you know, ICER deems too expensive anyway, how that plays into it. That's an interesting uh, uh, wrinkle I never thought of. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, kind of like a garbage in, garbage out sort of situation uh, from a modeling perspective. Yeah. Um, not to not to cast aspersions on uh, any metaphorical pricing, exactly. Um, but yeah, I think you know broadly in in the U.S., it's been more of a more of a case of you know what type of contracting are you willing to engage with. It's not really been mm -hmm. a question of reimbursement or not. It's not been as binary, I think, as as we've seen in, in Europe, and it's a bit more around, you know, to what extent are companies willing to engage with payers around innovative contracting models? What's going to work for, you know, plans of, you know, somebody like a United versus somebody that's, you know, a, a regional, mm -hmm. like a Harvard Pilgrim or a regional health plan that's only covering a couple million lives. And I think, you know, part of the, part of the concern on the U.S. payer side is more around some of their kind of smaller employer-based um, you know, yeah. health insurance groups where, yeah, if, if you know, Google or Apple have, have a, you know, gene therapy need in their plan, that's really not going to kind of break their budget. But if, you know, a 40-person auto dealership has that, that's sure. potentially a huge issue, right? And I think we, you know, this is yeah. something that we've heard a lot on the payer side. So I think, you know, it, there's, there's definitely, you know, I think a bit of a different dynamic there. And it's really just more around how do you tactically approach right. that? How are you willing, you know, what are you willing to concede on in terms of that contracting structure? And I think it's been interesting, the willingness from the payer side to engage in these types of agreements where historically they want to keep things as simple as possible in terms of, you know, maybe we get a discount, maybe we don't, but yeah. there's no outcomes or anything to track. Versus on the gene therapy side, I think they've been much more willing to engage in, you know, tracking outcomes, clinical, you know, data, you know, post-marketing studies, those kinds of things, which I think is, is a really interesting and, you know, probably productive, uh, probably productive outcome. Yeah. Okay. And, and Christian, I don't know, have you, have you heard, you know, whether in the past six months or a year or whatever, 
like the the two common roadblocks to implementing some of those more complex outcomes based um, agreements tends to be like that dynamic that we see in the U.S. where patients are on a plan for like three four years, but then because they change jobs or they move or you know whatever, they'll be on a completely different plan. So there's questions right. of you know how do you track those patients, and then the other being um, the feasibility of actually tracking patient outcomes and you know, is the system set up to, to, to do that effectively for, yeah. you know, what in totality amounts to a, a decent chunk of, of patients hypothetically, right? Yeah. So I think to, to the, to the second part of your question is probably the easier one to answer. I think in terms of, you know, it's just the, given the kind of overall number of patients, it's a little bit easier to track outcomes and things as opposed to, you know, doing a value-based contract for every type 2 diabetes patient in the U.S. is just not feasible to be tracking, you know, that much data. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, if a plan has one or two SMA patients in their plan, um, you know, it's really not, it's really not that much of a lift to, you know, you know, track those outcomes and data, especially as they're able to put, I think a lot of plans have also put in some level of kind of automated reporting, you know, not, I guess, fully automated in terms of it's all, you know, digital. But I think there's a, there's infrastructure at least in place to facilitate these types of you know, agreements on a small scale, um, you know, for the, you know, cell and gene therapy type approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, to your first question kind of around how, um, you know, how they're managing sort of, you know, turnover of patients or, or members of the plan. Yeah, I think that's still a concern that, that a lot of these these plans have. And it's sort of, you know, to be seen now, we're at, you know, about three years since Zolgensma launched. So I think that that could potentially um, get some more insight on that in the next year or two. But I think another one one major piece is that all these plans are also reinsured for all these patients as well. So if there is somebody who leaves their plan that they've paid money for already, they do also have kind of insurance in place for for that to protect their downside risk as well. So I think that's also become a big part of it in these plans, making sure that they have reinsurance in place for any sort of large cost outlay. And I think there is also a kind of a sense of you know collectively this potentially comes out in the wash in terms of the you yeah. know grand scheme of you know we might get one patient come into our plan who moves you know, or somebody else moves out of ours um obviously you know there are cases where an ind- individual plan might have five or 10 SMA patients that you know it's a smaller plan but again that's kind of those i think the reinsurance cases is sort of how that's being managed generally we'll see how sustainable yeah. that is yeah so switching gears entirely from commercial and insurer dynamics to to things that are just beginning to enter uh, uh, human studies. At the outset, Brendan, you sort of teased the discussion around uh, uh, xenotransplantation. So um, walk us through that. Yes, absolutely. So uh, I think the idea that you can take an an organ from um, a non-human animal species and transplant it into a human is like from science fiction, right? Um, And so I think for a little bit of historical context, you know, cross-species xenotransplantation would be, you know, a procedure or transplantation or infusion of live cells, tissues, or organ um, from a non-human source into a human. And that can be done um, either in vivo or ex vivo. Um, But to date, we've seen mostly um, ex vivo xenotransplantation such as like for for skin grafts yeah, yeah, yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, that procedure, you know, dates all the way back to uh, 1838 for blood transfusion in patients with 
you know, certain pathological uh, conditions and diseases. And um, there are sources that say that that goes even further back um, to the 1600s um, as well. So yeah, there, there's a history of it. And, and but I anyway, include some of that background just to, you know, show you how far we've come. Um, over, over, May not be you know, science fiction after all. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so the first attempt in animal to human heart transplantation occurred in 1964 by James Hardy. He implanted a chimpanzee heart into a semi-comatose amputee that ultimately failed for a number of reasons and complications, but it was the start to, you know, our understanding of the potential for doing this sort of thing. So all that historical context out of the way, that brings us to 2022. So in very early 2022, we saw that the cardiac team at the University of Maryland um, School of Medicine um, performed the first xenotransplant using a pig heart mm. uh, into a 57-year-old male patient who had terminal stage heart failure and was unqualified for um, a cardiac uh, allotransplant. Mm. So they did the procedure. After the p- procedure, the patient functioned well with the transplanted heart and showed no signs of rejection for about two months before mm. the patient passed away um, eventually as a result of, of heart failure. So for me, for us, I think there are a few really interesting um, aspects to this story. And two questions came up. Why why pigs? Um, yeah. And then why now? Like why is ne- why was now the yeah. time to attempt this sort of thing? So on that first question, so why pigs? So physicians, it turns out, um, they turn to pigs as potential yeah. donors for recipients because the pig heart has similar size, anatomy, and function to the human heart. Um, the challenge historically um, for using them in xenotransplants um, has to do with uh, porcine endogenous retroviruses or PERVs, okay. and those are present um, in all pig genomes, and they're directly integrated yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as DNA copies. So they're, they're, they're really hard um, to get to get rid of. With the advent, um, and, and so then the the second question is why now? So with the advent in the last you know five um, plus years um, of CRISPR and Cas9 gene editing, so essentially you can use gene editing to inactivate all proviral copies in the pig genome and eliminate the risk of um, perv transmission when using pig tissues for xenotransplants. So they essentially did a bunch of ex vivo editing of the pig organ before they transplanted it into the patient to get rid of um, some of that risk um, of um, sort of infectious, um, you know, pathogens and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of m- broader applicability, this is interesting because, um, you know, obviously we've we've done a good amount of work in the solid organ transplant space. So there's obviously a huge need. And I think one really interest, you know, I'd say organ transplantation as a sort of disease area is, is pretty niche. Um, but f- so for those who aren't, operating in that space. One really interesting statistic is that there are about 
89,000 kidney transplant candidates yeah. on the wait list in the US. Yeah. Um, and the annual procedure volume for kidney transplants is only around 24,000 right, right. as of the most recent year. Right. So you can see there's a pretty large delta there. So that means that for kidney transplants specifically, there's an average wait of three to five years. Mm-hmm. Now for um, other solid organs, it that you know the delta is not so substantial, yeah. but even for heart transplant procedures, there are around thirty three hundred candidates on the wait list, and the annual um, procedure volumes are maybe a little higher than that. Gotcha. So you still end up waiting, you know, not uncommonly um, six months to a, a year for yeah. a, a heart transplant. So you know, and these patients are very critically ill, as sure, you can imagine. Yeah. These are major organs that. Um, you know, have very low levels of of functioning. So the unmet need is very significant. Yeah. Interesting. Well, it all comes back to CRISPR, I guess, on today's <laughs> episode. So thanks, Brendan. That was a really interesting story and we'll definitely monitor what's happening on gene editing as it touches transplantation. Well, guys, I appreciate you doing this work and sharing your thoughts on what transpired in these spaces in, in 2022. And let's definitely plan on doing it again next year. And thank you all for joining us here on the Life Science Report from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. You can find all our podcasts and white papers and thought pieces on our website at bblsa.com, bblsa.com. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Life Science Report.